WENJ, WENJ HD, Millville, Atlantic City. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Yes, it's a happy hour Friday. Josh Hennig, Hunter Brody, here on 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill has the day off. He'll be back in here on Monday. We'll get to more of your text messages this hour, 609-403-0973. But right now, joining us on the Boardwalk Honda Hotline, Michael Kasky-Bluming, CBS Sports NBA writer, Sixers insider. As he tweeted earlier today, Sixers play their first scrimmage in Orlando one week from today. But the question is, and I asked it multiple times today, how serious can we take all of this Ben Simmons shooting? How seriously can we take it? We'll get into all that Sixers stuff and more with Michael Gasky blowing right now on the Boardwalk Honda Hotline. Mike, how you doing today? Jack, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. We appreciate you jumping on, so let's get right at it off the top, as I said. Ben Simmons is shooting threes in every video you turn online. Should we take it seriously? Uh, I think we should take it probably about as serious as we've taken it before, meaning that, you know, it's clearly a part of his game that he's trying to work on behind the scenes. Uh, I don't think that necessarily means that he's going to be comfortable, you know, doing it in games. I don't think it should, you know, mean that we're going to see him, you know, jacking up five threes a game, Uh, you know, especially given the fact that, he was coming off an injury. I think, you know, the main thing that he did with this, you know, the time away before they went to Orlando, I think really was uh, mainly just getting himself, you know, physically ready in game shape, um, you know, after being sidelined for an extended period of time with that back injury. Uh, I don't think, you know, shooting was part of it, but I don't think it was like he dedicated, uh, you know, extra time to working on that aspect of his game. And while, you know, I do think it's still going to continue to develop, I don't think it's necessarily just going to happen in Orlando that he comes out and starts, you know, knocking down a, a lot of threes. Do you think the change in position will now force him to be in certain spots on the floor, which then maybe changed his mindset in saying, hey, maybe I do need to do this more? Yeah, also I think it'll help him just be more comfortable because, you know, if you don't have the ball in your hands and you're in a catch-and-shoot situation, it's just a really quick instinct. You know, you, you catch the ball, you're open, and you release it. And I think that maybe playing him off the ball would help him, you know, get a, you know, a little bit comfortable, more comfortable taking shots as opposed to, you know, if you have the ball in your hand, you're dribbling. It's a little bit more of a, you know, a mental process to decide, all right, I'm going to pull up and take the shot right now when if you're just catching it and letting it fly. So I think part of it would be that. And then, like you said, I think part of it would just be the fact that, you know, if he's playing off ball and you already have Joel in the post, then, you know, he's going to need to, you know, space the floor. And I'm sure Brett and the rest of the coaching staff is going to be telling him to let it fly. So I think the combination of those two things will, you know, lead to him, you know, maybe attempting a little bit more than we've seen so far, but hopefully just gaining, you know, a little bit more comfort in the, the action. How does this move impact Joel Embiid? Because if Ben Simmons is playing the point forward and maybe sometimes he's in the corners, will that result in a double team? And then, you know, the way I look at it as Giannis is someone who clearly isn't a great three-point shooter, but he is able to make it. Teams still don't respect him at all. So even if Ben is camped out in the corner and Joel Embiid gets doubled and somehow maybe he finds him even though passing out of the double team is not his strongest thing he does – 
But even if Ben Simmons does make a couple threes, teams are still going to dare him all day long. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a long time until he's viewed like instinctually where players on the other team are like, oh, this is someone that we're going to have to get out on. But, you know, him moving to the the fourth spot, I think some of it, you know, obviously in today's NBA, a lot of people like to say it's positionless. And, you know, positions, you know, obviously aren't as important as they once were. And although it will be a change, I don't think it's going to be maybe quite as radical of a change as a lot of people expect. We're still going to see, you know, there's still the Sixers are still going to emphasize getting out in transition, and that's, you know, Ben at his best. You know, if he gets a defensive rebound or someone else gets a defensive rebound and gives it to him in the backcourt, he's going to be pushing the ball like he always does. And then also I think you're going to see him in a lot of action at the top of the key still, whether that's, you know, in dribble handoffs or pick and rolls. You know, I think Brett's going to find ways where he can still utilize Ben, and I think that means while there will be situations where maybe Shake's running a pick and roll with another player and Ben's posted in the corner, I don't think he's going to be a guy that's used consistently as, you know, too often as a floor spacer. I think, you know, the ball is still going to be in his hands a lot, especially in transition, and he's still going to be, you know, heavily involved on the action. I think the main thing will be, you know, in certain times in half-court sets, especially in, the, in postseason play, uh, you know, just having a guy with the ball in his hands like and shake it in the point guard spot that can, uh, you know, defenses have to respect at the top of the key. I think that's going to be the main difference, but it's not like the ball, you know, it's not like Ben's still not going to have the ball in his hands a lot of the time that he's on the floor because I think he still will. Michael, I'm really glad you brought that up because when I spoke with Ben Golliver earlier this week, because he's down there in the bubble, and he said his big concern with Ben, his new position is he doesn't want Brett just taking the ball you know, matter-of-factly out of his hands because Ben Golliver feels like that Ben Simmons is one of the best ball handlers and decision-makers with the ball in his hand in the open court. So it seems like from what you're saying that it's not that the ball is being taken out of his hands, is that some of the pressure is taken off of him to be the main catalyst of the offense. Absolutely, Josh. And it'll be situational. Like he won't be forced in the situations where they're taking the ball out of half court and the defense is already set. You know, it's not necessarily going to have to dump it in a bend, and they're going to be able to stand ten feet back from him. In those situations, that's when you know Shake is going to be the guy that has the ball, and they'll put Ben in pick and roll situations or dribble handoff situations or, or other situations. But this was always technically supposed to be the plan. Like I tweeted earlier this week that Shake Milton could be what Markel Fultz was supposed to be for the Sixers. And I didn't necessarily mean that he could have the same feeling. I meant that, you know, when they drafted Markel, they drafted him specifically to fit next to Ben as a combo guard that could both, you know, create the offense on, on his own and handle the ball and take some of that pressure off of Ben and then also play off of the ball and spot up and catch and shoot when Ben had the ball. And that's basically the role Shake's going to play. So I think, you know, some of it is a little bit overblown because it's so, you know, so jarring here. Brett Brown say, you know, I've moved Ben off the ball, uh, you know, during all these practices. And it's certainly going to be different. But, you know, Brett's a smart enough guy to realize how dangerous and how good Ben is with the ball in, you know, 80% of game situations, especially in transition when, you know, he's, he's sprinting down the court. He's one of the fastest guys in the league. And with, you know, one of the best handles in the league, like Ben said, uh, Ben Golliver, you referenced. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, obviously it'll, it'll be a different situation, but it's, you know, Brett knows how dangerous Ben can be in those situations, and he's going to look to still maximize that skill set. Michael Caskey-Blomain joining us here on the Boardwalk on the Hotline on 97.3 ESPN. 
NBA writer for CBS Sports, also Sixers Insider. Follow him on Twitter at the Real Mike KB. Mike, you mentioned Shake Milton, so did Hunter. So I want to touch on Shake because one of the things that's interesting to me about this whole situation is everyone overlooks something about the league. The league is built around teams that have multiple ball handlers. There's not a successful team in this league over the last decade and change that has had a successful playoff run without multiple ball handlers. So to me, everyone wants to talk about Ben Simmons, but I'm going to flip it in the other direction. I think Shake might be one of the most important X-factors for this entire playoff run. Absolutely, Josh. It's funny enough that you use that terminology because I actually asked Shake specifically uh, during a Zoom call last week. I said point blank. I was like, Shake, you know, do you think you can be an X factor for this team? And he kind of pushed back on, on that term specifically. But the point stands nonetheless, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, the, the book is out on most of the other sixes at this point, meaning that, you know, obviously Tobias Harris is a veteran that's been around. Al Horford's a veteran that's been around. People know what to expect when you go up against Joel at this point in his career. Same with Ben. Shake is a guy that started, you know, let, played in less than 20 NBA games. Half the teams in the league haven't even faced him yet. There's not, you know, not a whole lot of tape for the teams other than those games that he was playing in right before the, the season was suspended. So, you know, he's still kind of a, you know, a question mark, I think, to a lot of teams in the league, as much as you can be in 2020, given all the, you know, the technology and film that's around. And then given that, I think he's a guy that can maybe not catch guys by surprise, but just come in and when there's so much attention given to Ben and, and Joel and the other guys, Tobias on the team, he's a guy that can come in and really, you know, like you said, kind of be that X factor that maybe he's not going to score 30 because the other guys are doing it, but he's the guy that can make the plays, you know, knock down a few shots like that they didn't have before, make a couple of assists and, and things like that that can turn the tide of the game. How dominant could Ben Simmons be as a roller? Yeah, that's that's a good point for Odin. I think that has a lot, uh, like that's a big factor in Brett's decision here because in the, you know, the small amounts that we've seen Ben in, in that role, he's really good at it. In, in a couple ways, he's really good at finishing around the rim. And he's also really good at, in the role that uh, something like the Warriors would do a lot with Draymond Green and Steph when they would have Draymond as the roller, but he wouldn't necessarily look to finish. He would sometimes roll and then catch it and then pass out, make like a skip pass to the perimeter to find another guy. And Ben, obviously, with his playmaking and, and vision and passing skills that he has, is excellent in both of those scenarios. He can, you know, catch oops or finish around the rim or be, you know, kind of the intermediary secondary passer. And I think it's going to open, you know, a lot of different possibilities for the Sixers offense that they really weren't, uh, you know, they were one of the least teams that least utilized pick and rolls during the past couple of seasons. And I, uh, Brett told us the other day on a Zoom call that, you know, the emergence, emergence of Shake and Ben as, as Ben a roller has, um, you know, allowed them to kind of include more pick and rolls into the playbook and expand things a little bit more. So I think it's going to be uh, obviously interesting to see, but I think we'll see some more wrinkles offensively with Ben as a roller uh, that, you know, they, they weren't really using before this, uh, before Orlando. Now Al Horford's interesting. Joel Embiid, they're looking to get 38 minutes out of him. So how many minutes do you think that Al Horford can get? I think they'll probably be looking to get like a, a good mid mid twenties a game out of Al. Like you said, if Joel, I mean Joel playing thirty eight is obviously, you know, best case scenario high end. I think realistically, when he can, Brett's obviously going to try not to you know get that much. Let's say Joel gets around thirty four a game. That's you know fourteen minutes that Al will be out there solo manning the post, 
uh, the center spot, and there'll be, you know, certainly some overlap in different lineups that Brett will try out. So I think mainly the most important thing, obviously, is going to be those minutes that he's out there without Joel. And I think, you know, if you want him at his best for those in terms of, you know, energy and everything like that. So you want to maximize those minutes. And then the rest of the time that he's out there, uh, you know, there's still no answer in terms of how well he's going to play next to Joel. Hopefully they'll figure out a little bit more cohesion than they had uh, during, um, you know, the regular season. But other than Shake, I think Al is probably the biggest, you know, for use the word again, X factor on the Sixers just in terms of if he is able to kind of find a stride and find a role that, that works well for him, he could really take that team to another level. But, you know, it could go the other way, too, where if he kind of still is struggling to, to fit in and things are clunky with him, you know, it could end up being trouble for the team. You mentioned about Al Horford and how the X factor he can be. I think that it's an, a combination of Horford, at least for me, the combination of Horford with the bench, though, because if Horford is the quote-unquote backup center and he's coming in a roll off the bench, he's obviously part of a group of players that Brett is going to work in. And to me, I think that you got to look around the Eastern Conference and say that you know whether it's Horford, whether it's Furkan, whether it's uh, you know Matisse Thybul, any of those guys. There are certain teams that they, the Sixers are going to need those guys to match up with in the Eastern Conference as those guys come in and play minutes for Ben and Joel, right? Yeah, absolutely. Depth you know, for the Sixers is going to be huge, and I think we'll see that during, especially during this first eight seeding games. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of tinkering on Brett's, on Brett's part in terms of you know, trying to figure out the, the rotation behind the starting five and who, you know, which units work well um, together, obviously, outside of the first five. I think those those first eight games would be really important to that because, you know, obviously, once you get into that postseason play, uh, the, the rotation shrinks a little bit. And some of the guys, you know, Alec Burks, Glenn Robinson, didn't really get a whole lot of opportunity to get acclimated to the Sixers system. Uh, you know, before the season was suspended. So I think it would be, you know, really interesting to see what groups Brett thinks work well together. He mentioned yesterday on the phone uh, specifically that he was running a lot of Horford and Ben together with uh, <clears throat> with Korkmaz, uh, Matisse Seibel, and Tobias Harris, which I thought was a, an interesting lineup uh, combination. But I think we'll see a lot of things like that up until the playoffs start, where at that point you'll probably see, you know, the, the rotation slim down to nine or, or maybe ten guys. Now, you just got me excited because you mentioned that Brett brought up Matisse Thiable as a potential lineup. I love the idea of Thiable in this postseason because you look at the team the Sixers got to match up with. The Bucks got Chris Middleton. The Celtics got guys like Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown. You have a team like Miami with all of their perimeter players along with Jimmy Butler, guys like Nunn and Robinson and Dragic coming off the bench. And I think Thibel might be the key to really slowing down the perimeter threats in these playoffs. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. And I think Brett thinks that too. I I definitely think that he sees he sees Matisse playing a, a pretty important role for this team. And I think in a way the break might have benefited Matisse too because I mean obviously he's still a rookie. But I think in a way it probably feels almost like he's, you know, his rookie season ended in March 
almost like they didn't make the playoffs and now they're kind of coming back again to a second season. I think, you know, maybe some of the jitters or things. I mean, obviously you can't prepare for postseason basketball. That'll be a little bit different. But I think the poise, uh, you know, and the, the preparation might just be a little bit higher than what it was for him during the season. And if he can, you know, for him, the question really has been on the offensive end in terms of if he's, if he's able to stay out on the floor because, you know, he obviously defensively is uh, one of the better perimeter players on the team. I think for him, if he can just get out in transition and, and run and, and then knock down those threes, uh, you know, also like Ben in transition that he was asked to do during the regular season, if he can do that at a decent clip, uh, I think we could see him playing, uh, you know, a really big role for the Sixers throughout the postseason for sure. Sticking with the bench, do you think that Moss can hold his own defensively in half-court sets? Uh, that's, that's tough. Uh, you know, I would say yes in certain situations. I mean, obviously it's not ideal, and I think Brett will have a pretty quick quick uh, leash for, for him in those situations, meaning that you know if he's out there and he's getting torched pretty badly, he's not going to you know leave him out there for too long. But I think... It, you know, it's it's not himself. The Sixers as a team obviously have a lot of good defenders, and I think the hope is that, you know, what he brings on the offensive end, which obviously is floor spacing, something that they need, um, you know, with Ben and Joel to, to give them that extra space. It's, you know, some of the other guys, whether it be Al or, or, or Joel or Ben, can kind of make up for, you know, what he doesn't bring on the defensive end in terms of team defense, whether he gets beat or if they, they you know, can switch quick enough things like that. But, you know, just like, you know, Matisse's biggest question of in terms of how much he was going to be able to play depends on his offensive output. Uh, you know, the same could be said about Furkan defensively. If he's able to, you know, I, I do think he showed some progress throughout the season. He, he got quicker with his hands. His, I think laterally he got a little bit quicker and better at staying in front of people. Obviously, still, you know, you're not going to put him on Kawhi Leonard in, in Game 7 to win the game for you. But I think, you know, if he can just do enough to, to make it decent where he, they can help him out, then he should be able to, you know, get, get some serious time for himself out there. Michael Gaskey, Lomain, joining us here in the Boardwalk on the Hotline on 97.3 ESPN. Follow him on Twitter at the Real Mike KB, CBS Sports NBA writer and Sixers insider. Mike, you guys were just talking about Furkan, and Furkan is a topic of that's very. I'm very conflicted on this because, on one hand. I understand how important floor spacing is when you have guys like Ben and Joel on your team. But at the same time, I look around the Eastern Conference and I wonder, because how good this defensively the Sixers team can be, what's really more important when you're going against the Bucks, the Celtics, or the Heat, or the Raptors? Is it your defense or is it spreading the floor? So I ask you that question what is going to be more important to beat those teams? Is it how you space the floor around Ben and Joel, or is it the kind of defense you play against those teams that present unique matchups? Uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's a combination of both, Josh, and I, I do think that's part of the reason that they brought those guys in from Golden State because, you know, ideally as good as Korkmaz is as a floor spacer, he's still pretty one-dimensional. You know, he's gotten a little bit better putting the ball on the floor. But I think ideally Brett wants, you know, would like a, a little bit more of a two-way player uh, that, that, like you said, obviously, that can do both of those things so you don't necessarily have to sacrifice one for the other in a series against the likes of the Bucks or the Raptors. And I think, you know, that that's why ultimately if, 
if you know Glenn Robinson or Alec Burks or Matisse, um, I think they'll have a slightly better chance than Furkan to you know really kind of make a carve out a role for themselves in that playoff rotation just because of their ability you know to, to get it done on both ends of the floor where Korkmaz might be a little bit better of a shooter than either any of those guys on that end you know what he gives up on the other end might not you know balance out so I think you know ultimately I, I think it might be a little bit more important to have the spacing around those guys offensively because no matter what, if you have Ben and Joel and then a couple other solid guys out there like Josh and Matisse, they're gonna you're gonna have a good defensive team and they're gonna get stops. Uh, I think the Sixers, especially in, down the stretch in like playoff series the past couple of years, they've faltered more on the offensive end. They you know have long uh, droughts of time where they they can't score and that's where you know Ben's difficulties with spacing the floor really gets magnified and where Joel has kind of struggled with, uh, you know, taking care of the ball or handling double teams and things like that. So I think they're a little bit ahead defensively at this point of where they are. So I think, you know, if you had to pick one, I would say a little bit more toward the offense. And that's why I think Farcon will get a chance. But ultimately, I wouldn't be shocked if one of those guys, um, you know, that's a little bit more of a two-way player edged him out in the rotation. All right, Josh and I were having some fun today with this conversation. So I want to get your opinion on it. Do you think Larry Bird would dominate in 2020? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, dominate in terms of would he be the best player in the league? Probably not. No, no, would no. He be an all-star so, level player. No, no. Here's the deal, Mike. So the the topic came up out of nowhere about you know older players playing in the modern league, and my point was is that to me, Larry in today's game is a better version of Dirk. You know, Dirk won a league MVP. I think Larry's got a higher basketball IQ. I think that, you know, Dirk is not the most athletic dude in the world. I think Bird would be a better version of Dirk. And I think that, you know, if Dirk was able to win a league MVP and have a long career, then Larry with modern medicine would have just as long as a career, whereas Hunter and uh, Daryl Reynolds extremely disagree with me. Yeah, I said maybe a little Spencer Hulse. Spencer Hawes. Wow. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm definitely kidding. That's, that's a little disrespectful right there. Uh, no, I think I agree. I don't think Larry Bird would be the best player in the league by any means, but I do think that he would be, you know, a guy, an all-star, potentially MVP level player. He, I think at this point, Larry Bird almost gets a little bit underrated because people tend to like lump him in in terms of being like a, a guy from the 80s that might not have been you know, the most athletic or anything like that. But he did a lot on the court in terms of, you know, obviously, but he was a great passer. He could get out in transition, good rebounder, obviously probably the first, like, really prolific three-point shooter. So he has a type of game that would translate well to today, given the fact that he could space the floor and also get to the rim. And then, Josh, like you said, with, you know, he – a big problem with Larry was his back starting to break down, like, you know – early into his career, career comparatively to guys that play today. And you would think that, you know, he probably wouldn't have built that fence uh, for his mom or that brick wall or whatever he did in the 80s that blew his back out uh, under the supervision in today's NBA, and he'd be able to stretch his career out a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still think he would be he would still be Larry Bird today. That's what I was saying. In today's world, Larry Bird isn't paving his mother's driveway for her. He's paying someone else to do it. Right, yeah, I definitely don't think the Celtics would let him, you know, go, go blow his back out doing something like that in the off season. All right, Mike, really quick. So let's so let's so let's try to find some consensus here. Name a player from the '80s or '90s who was a star. 
that you look at then and say that dude couldn't survive in today's game? Like some some star level player then. A star from the '80s that couldn't survive in in the game today. Yeah. Oh man, that's tough. Uh, I don't know, man. You put me on the spot. I can't think of any that, that can't survive. I mean, obviously there would be some that you know whose game wouldn't translate as well. But I feel like if you were able to be a star in the '80s at this point, that you know you would still be able to have some moderate success at least in the game today. All right, I'll I'll just be controversial and just ruin the conversation for everybody. I don't think Mo Cheeks is a starting point guard in today's NBA. I know Sixer fans love him, but the dude, literally the only thing he did was dribble, pass, and play defense. He couldn't score a lick. Yeah, that's that's a fair consensus. I guess uh, in that in that vein, it would be tough. To, it's just always tough to you know cro- like compare players across eras. Broads, you, you agree, disagree? I get what you're saying, but, you know. Maybe he's worse than Spencer Hollis. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, he's Michael Kasky Blomain. Follow him on Twitter at the Real Mike KB, CBS Sports NBA writer, also Sixers Insider. Follow him for all your Sixers and NBA news. As all guests, he appeared on the Boardwalk Honda Hotline. Mike, appreciate the time on this Friday. Thanks for having me on, guys. Good talking to you. Sports Bash here on 97.3 ESPN. He's on a birdie. I'm Josh. I had to pull out a name to at least tear down somebody. You know, we're talking too much. Uh, I'm giving Bird too much credit. I had to throw somebody into the boss on her. I would have to agree with you. You're giving him way too much credit. <laughs> Sports Bash being brought to you by Matt Black Kia. Matt Black Kia wants to get you approved today. That's Matt Black Key on the Black Horse Bike in Egg Harbor Township. We'll go back to the text board next, 609-403-0973. Happy Hour Friday. Man, we've touched on so many things today. We still have another half hour to go on the Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Josh Edding, Hunter Brody, hanging out with you. The Flyers are in the NHL playoffs. And when the NHL returns to the ice, you can listen to all the Flyers playoff hockey action. He scores! Hunter Birdie, Sports Bash, Happy Hour Friday, here on 97.3 ESPN. Text board is open, 609-403-0973. You want to throw in some more Ask Bros and Josh questions? I got it right that time. You know, on Fridays, Mike Gill won't be here. They won't be here next Friday. So, you know, we're going to keep a lot of the segments the same when Mike's not here. Headlines, Ask Josh and Broads or Broads and Josh or whoever you want to delineate. I don't really care. We're all just having a good time here on a Friday, right? Absolutely. I'm thinking about that drink I'm going to have when I get home. I was going to say White Claw, but I might go Stella Artois tonight. Ooh, I like a good Stella yeah, Artois. Yeah, I like a good Stella. Now, now, here's the they're thing, in though. a can. See, I was just going to ask you that. See, I'm not a can guy. Now, I will say, for Stella's... I think bottle is better because this is my first time going Stella can and I do taste a difference. See, I like the bottle because I feel like there's a crispness, sorry, crispness with the bottle that doesn't come from the can at times. I understand that certain like breweries, they they only make them in the can. So I can't really speak to what they taste like, but like if you ever go to one of those like if you actually go to like a local brewery here in South Jersey, well, how are they serving you the beer? 
It's in the draft, in a glass. Yeah. So a lot of times my experience with the beer, with the first time I try it, is the tinge on a glass bottle or a glass container. So to me, there's a degrading of a quality when you go to the can. I don't know if the degrading is that high. I think it's more of a mental thing, really. I do think it's like a placebo kind of when you look at these bottles in certain or these beers in certain atmospheres. Does that make sense? I can't agree. I don't think it's placebo. I, I think there's a genuine difference between how it comes out of the can, how it comes out of a bottle. If or a I glass. poured you three glasses and said, "This is draft, this is bottle, this is cans," without you knowing, I think you'd have a tough time. You might taste a little bit of a difference, but I don't think you'd be able to be like, "Okay, that's glass, that's can." Like you will taste a little bit of a difference. Don't get me wrong, but I think it'll be tough. But like I said, I drink my drinks based on enjoyment, not based on. Let's get crunk. No, but like, I, I'm not that guy. I know you're not that guy, but I still think it's like I like that locale IPA that he that Gil brought in the other day. One of the reasons why I think it's good is it's a poundable IPA. So like I do think that it's important to throw into the equation how poundable but some here's of these the beers thing. are. You've never had that in a bottle or draft before. No, that's true. So you don't know if it would be better or not with the other option. That's fair. But overall, in terms of poundability, when we're, we're talking about, because you say about the taste and whatever, I think poundability should be involved in the, in the conversation. Yes, there is a delineation and a value to how much you can consume. Like, for example, you know, wine is not a poundable entity. Now, if you want to, to be, some, it might be. Well, I mean, it depends on your emotional state of being. But, you know, typically. You're not drinking an entire bottle of wine in one sitting, nine times out of ten. Yeah, there is that one time that you're like, this is really good, or you're just off and you don't have a care in the world. But, you know, other times, usually, you know, you're drinking the wine, and you might get through half a bottle, then you take a nap. I think the bottle of wine in one sitting is very much in play. It's in play, but it's not a go-to. Whereas a six-pack, it's a go-to. You don't think the bottle of wine is a go-to? Listen, I've been the guy who had the whole bottle in one sitting, and I've been the guy who hasn't had the bottle in one sitting, and it's a state of mind. And and it's the bottle, too. Some bottles, you're like, this is incredible, you can't put it down. Other bottles, you're like, I have my fill for the night. I think full bottle is in play. Yeah, almost consistently. Have you ever actually had a bottle by yourself in one sitting? Oh, yeah. It's a fun night. I have trouble believing you. Right <laughs> well, no, you I have... swear, I've done it before. Absolutely, I've well, done it I've before. I've done it, too. That's but... what I'm saying. It's, it's in play. You bring that bottle, it's like, all right, let's have it. But you've drank the whole bottle by yourself. Yes. What do you think? I'm splitting it with seven people? No, I think you maybe split it with your fiance. Well, no, we've done that, too, of course, which would mean that would be half the bottle yeah. for me, which is also a fun time. But, yes, of course, full bottle in play. Depends on the night, but full bottle in play. All right. I guess I got to say I'm impressed, then. Well, I'm impressed that you're impressed. <laughs> 609 407 I get a couple of texts in here. I first got to blast Mr. 305. Because he is really ticked off about our movie choices. So we got to break this down. He says, wow, horrible movie choices, Brody. You're a child. I don't like that. 
See, now I did say that before I mentioned my favorite movie. I said people will probably be upset because in terms of production and directors and actors, way better out there. Yeah. But I don't think I should be claimed a child at the age of 25, may I add, just because that The Sandlot is a movie that I think is the best movie out there. To me, the question is, what's your favorite movie of all time? Right, and he Not asked... Not what do you think is the greatest movie of all time. Right. This is a personal preference choice this is not a we're going to the oxers we're voting on what's the best picture in 2009 okay you asked the question wrong then texter if you wanted to know what the greatest movie of all time is you should have asked that not what's your favorite there's a delineation here now number two says josh you're a meathead first no, all, i agree with him on that first of all i'm smarter than almost every meathead on earth there's a handful of meatheads who can meet me, meet me intellectually. There's not a lot of them. So I don't fit that delineation. But see, I don't associate meathead with someone who's unintelligent. I associate meathead as someone who just really enjoys, like, working out muscles. That's how I see it. Now, he might be trying to attack your knowledge. He's attacking my knowledge. Okay, well, I don't do that. But he I says, will say— He says, Josh, you're not a movie guy. Well, you are a movie guy. He says, if Remember the Titans is your favorite movie, please ask Pete Thompson about that. Well, first of all— Pete Thompson knows me well enough to not think that poorly of me. Second of all, the list of his movies he gives for Denzel, I can't agree with this list. He says, that movie isn't even top 10 Denzel. So then he goes on the list a bunch of movies. Now, anybody who knows Denzel Washington, when I read this list, there's some obvious omissions here. So here we go. Philadelphia, The Siege, Crimson Tide, Glory, Malcolm X, Flight, Training Day, American Gangster are all better than Titans. So first of all, let's go through this list real hot second. Philadelphia was a very good, not great movie. Siege, good, not great movie. Crimson Tide, incredible movie. Glory, incredible movie. Malcolm X, very good movie, maybe slightly overhyped. Flight, that's more of a prisoner of recency bias, all right? You forgot Man on Fire. If you don't think Man on Fire is the greatest performance by Denzel Washington, we can't agree on anything. Number two, you have Training Day on the list. Training Day is one of the three greatest of all time, all right? Training Day is above the siege. It's above Philadelphia. It's above glory. It's above flight. But you had a bunch of others before you got the Training Day. American Gangster, yeah, it's top five. Also, you know what's a great movie? John Q. If you watch John Q and you don't want to cry near the end, then you don't have a freaking soul, okay? Denzel is a great actor. And if I prefer Remember the Titans over Philadelphia, The Siege, and Crimson Tide, but you forgot Man on Fire, then what the heck are we talking about here? You tell him, Josh. You tell him. Anything to add on that? Uh, no, I'm done. Okay. We did get another text, though. Yeah, go ahead. The texter did not leave a name, but loves Mike, but you guys are a nice change of pace. Great job on the show today, fellas. Well-deserved cold ones for you after the show. Well, thank you so much for that. I like being called a change of pace. I've been called a lot worse things. There's nothing wrong with a nice change of pace. Yeah, you know. Just saying. Uh, by the way, he also thought up and said, bottles always taste better, that same texter. Bottle of wine is always in play. The whole thing. Rich from the Villas. Now I'm I'm on Rich's side here. I don't it's not an every time thing, I will say, but 
it's it's definitely in play. It's in play. Yes, I don't disagree. But to me, it's about the quality of that bottle because there are some bottles that you don't want to put down. There are other bottles you're kind of having to push yourself through. Like, for example, I have the Vivino app. But the Vivino app is the wine version of Mike Gill. What's the oh, Gill? Gill's app Oh, he the does the beer one. I, I forget the name yeah. off the top of well, my head. I have the wine version of the beer app that Gill does. And for me, I've at this point rated, I think, over 60 wines, okay? So I'm pretty deep down the rabbit hole when it comes to the wine bottle. And to me, there's three kinds of wines. There's drinking wines, there's food wine, and then there's whole bottle wine, okay? So to me, it depends on the kind of wine. There's some wine that once you start drinking it without the food, it loses a little bit of the fun. It loses a little bit of the crisp. It loses a little bit of the flavor because it's not meant to be drank without the food. There's other wine that you don't need the food. It's that great. It's that awesome. And then there's other wine that's even better than that that you just can't put the bottle down. So I understand the bottle is in play, but it's not always in play. But I think the ones that you talk about that need food, if you drink enough of it first while you are having food, or let's be realistic, even if you drink it without the food and you realize, huh, this would be a lot better with food, by the time you're halfway done that bottle, it doesn't matter. Full bottle, back in play, because you're already in the mode of pounding the glasses. Yeah, but see, I'm not a pounder. That's right. This goes back to the not being a pounder. That needs to be in play. A couple things need to be in play when it comes to that, which I'm surprised. Because I remember about last summer, you were talking about all the time how you would make a lot of drinks, you would hang out, and you would do it until you fell asleep at night. Well, I mean, that's because I'm at home by myself. You know, I'm a singer. But I would associate that with being a pounder. You just casually sip those until you get too drunk and you fall asleep? Well, no, I just drink until it's all gone. Then I fall asleep. Well, I think that means you need to get more. Well, I might have money to buy more. I think you have money to buy or more. May, or maybe I don't want to go out and get more after I've already been drinking. How about well, that? Well, it should be planned properly before well, you start executing. Sometimes you don't plan for things. Sometimes you're in the middle of a binge marathon and it's What marathon? Hours. Tell me five. what marathon got you to start going after it. Okay, well. The you, Brady Bunch? No. Not no. the Brady Bunch? No. The Golden uh, Girls? <laughs> what gets you going, Josh? I want to know what gets you going. So... One of the shows I have been consuming since the start of the pandemic has been the show Lucifer on Netflix. And it was recommended to me by somebody else because they said to me, considering the types of shows you like, Josh, you might be interested in this. And I said, okay. It's a show that's binge-worthy. It's a show that you don't just watch one or two episodes. You typically consume about five to ten episodes in a shot. All right? Another show that's very binge-worthy is The Blacklist, which is also on Netflix. It started on NBC, but every time the season's done, the next season's put on Netflix, right? It's a show that you don't just watch one episode because the character of Raymond Reddington is that incredible. He's one of the best antagonists I've ever seen on the show because he's not the protagonist. He's not the hero of the show. He's kind of the bad guy. He's kind of like the other side, but you're almost wanting to watch more of him because he's James Spader does that incredible job with him. Another show is Designated Survivor. 
you can't watch one episode of Designated Survivor because every episode builds on the other episodes. It's a continual string. Yeah, but it's you watch these flow. shows and they and it, it makes you want to booze? That's what I'm getting at here. Well, While no, watching these shows, no, you sit there and go, huh, I think it's time for a drink. No, it's that you start with one drink and you're so involved in watching the show, you're not tracking how much you're drinking. And that kind of relates to the conversation where the bottle should be totally... If you're going to watch that many episodes and you're so focused on the show you casually keep drinking these bottles of wine... That bottle of wine should be demolished by the time you're done watching the show. Well, first of all, if you don't have a great bottle of wine, you always need to buy more than one bottle. That way, if the bottle that you're drinking that you ate with the food is not maybe lasting as long in the palate, you put the cork in and you switch to a new bottle, and then you down that bottle. Do you go glass of wine with every meal at home? When no. you eat at home, you go glass of wine no matter what? No. Okay. Has to be right time, right place? Situational. Situational. By the way, Tom from the Villas agrees with me, kind of. Whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean, kind of? He says, beer stays colder longer in the bottle, in my opinion. I'm not anti-bottle. I actually prefer bottles at times, like the Stella Artois. It's like, okay, I had a can of it. I prefer it in a bottle. But I'm just rocking it. You know, I, I don't really care. To be honest with you, the difference, the distinct difference, it doesn't bother me. I like them either way. Stephen Marmora says bottles always taste better. Personal preference. I think now, here's the thing. That's where I agree with you. It's a personal preference. My personal preference is bottle or draft. It always has been. It always will be. Yeah, but see, for example, a Miller Lite. I like a Miller in a bottle, but the can... I don't know. For some reason, the can, it just flows out the can. Nope. It tastes good. It's a I fine can't. pilsner. Would it lie to me? It says it right there. I mean, it's mwah. Nah, I, I can't I can't do the can. Unless, you won't even do the can. Unless the can is the only experience I have with that drink. Like, for example, when Mike brought you the IPAs. If that's the only experience you have with that IPA, then you don't know anything else. Well, what if I said, Josh, come on over. And you came over, you hung out, and I had a cooler in the back. And in that cooler, it was 10 different beers, all in cans. Are you now? Are you not going to drink because they're all in cans? No, I'll still drink. Okay. But if I had a choice. Okay. So you won't be out if it is canned. Listen, I'm not the guy who shows up and you offer me something. I'm like, can't do it to the can. I'm not a snob. Well, hold on. Now you know it's going to be all cans. Do you now come in with a six-pack of bottles? Like, hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm not a big can guy. I brought my own bottles. <laughs> well, there's a difference between being BYOB and me showing up and you saying, hey, Josh, I got a fridge full. Oh, I well, want you to partake. That's the only way I invite my friends over. Fellas, come on over. I got plenty of beer. Come hang out. Do you show up with the bottles knowing that they're probably all going to be cans? Um, not. Okay. Let me delineate this, because there's a delineation here. If you tell me, Josh, I have a fridge full, I want to share, then I'm probably not bringing anything, because you're basically telling me, don't bring anything. That's exactly what I'm telling you. But if you tell me, Josh, bring something, then I might bring something. That's more my, more my speed. Okay, and that's totally fine. I just didn't know if you were so anti-can that if you knew cans were going to be there, uh-uh, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not crazy, okay? Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
unique and crazy, maybe that's in play. Two sides of the same coin? Yeah, there you go. Ah, okay. Sports Bash being brought to you by New Jersey Department of Agriculture. Jersey fresh cucumbers are great as a snack in a salad or pickled and are now in season. Find some today at your favorite market. Thank New Jersey farmers. Buy Jersey fresh cucumbers. Five questions. Before we get to the five questions, just want to let everybody know, Mike, yo, we'll be back in on Monday. I'll be back on tomorrow for Sports Bash Saturday after Billy Schwein in the locker room from 10 to noon. Hunter Brody's just here Monday to Friday anyway. So, uh, by way, Joey D. I think Joey D's trying to bridge the both worlds here on the beers. He says, I drink Corona Premier, especially on the beach. I can pound a can and it stays cold in both if you have a beer hug. So what Joey D is saying is, it doesn't matter if it's a can or a bottle, if you got the huggy, it stays cold. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm not anti, uh, I go koozie, I call it the koozie. I'm not anti-koozie, but uh, I don't know. You know who's big on the koozie? Who? The PT. PT's a big koozie guy. Big, huge. Huge koozie guy. Massive. All right, we'll start with number one here for the five. Are you a koozie guy? Depends on the environment. Depends on the environment. So on the beach, you'd go koozie? Yes. Would you bring the koozie knowing that, like, hey, I'm on the beach, I got to bring my koozie? Yeah. See, the koozie is never in my mind. It's part of the package. Here's my thing to you. Drink the beer faster, it won't get warm. Question number two. <laughs> I asked Gil this the other day. What's your sports number when you were playing? Did you have a number that you always went to? No. Okay. Because here's the thing. I was the scrappy player. I was never the star player. Nothing wrong with that. So I was the guy who only had a handful of numbers to pick from. So I I had a run there where I was always number five. I guess number Ooh, five was Donovan. I, but five wasn't popular. Number five will always love you. So there was a run where like the five was the only number available in a lot of sports. So I felt I just was consistent. I could see you as a five. But then at one point, then I became a 31. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> because 31. That's so Josh. Because 31 was available. That's so Josh. All right, I don't know how this is going to go, so I'm going to ask you. Okay. And I feel like your answer is going to be I don't have one, and I'm going to be disappointed. Your Chick-fil-A order. All right, my Chick-fil-A order is the regular chicken sandwich. I don't, I don't do the deluxe. Pickle? I love the pickle. Good. I'm so happy you said that. But it's also the mar the garden market salad. Okay. I like both. Okay. I like to have two. If I'm going to go all in on the Chick-fil-A for a meal, I get two chicken classics and the garden market salad. Okay. You're missing out on the large fries? I mean, favorite I without. Favorite wine? Um, I, If I'm going to go favorite wine, it's always a uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. I tend to like a lot of the Washington wines right now. I'm finding the Washington cabs have a lot more balance and depth to it. Okay. Do you have a favorite wine? It's actually Josh. I like a nice bottle of Josh. Oh, the, oh, the Josh brand. Yes. All right, you confused me there. Bro. He's on a birdie. I'm Josh Hennig. Have a great week. South Jersey's favorite sports show, The Sports Bag.